Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode, part six of General Conference Post Mortem. Yes, this is the sixth and final episode in the historic series between myself and Jonathan Streeter dissecting all the different talks that were given in the April 2021 General Conference. I have to tell you that I really never thought we would get done with the General Conference post-mortem. I know I could not have done it on my own, and that is why shortly after General Conference was over, I contacted Jonathan Streeter and asked if he would help me with this project by hosting it and adding his wonderful contributions and insights. It's like having a partner to work out with. Having a partner makes it much more likely that you will do your workouts as planned, and indeed, this plan worked perfectly. Having Jonathan Streeter on board as my partner made it so that we did finally get through all of General Conference. It only took us six episodes and approximately 12 hours of podcasting time. A lot of times, the Sunday afternoon session of General Conference, which is what we're going to be covering today, has the least interesting talks. I mean, it is Sunday afternoon, everybody's done with General Conference, in mind if not in spirit, and as often as not, the speakers there don't have much of interest to say. But this conference is an exception. There are a number of interesting things that are said, a number of interesting stories that are told that deserve the Radio Free Mormon and Thinker of Thoughts treatment. If you have already contributed to Radio Free Mormon, I want to thank you so much for your contributions. Your donations help keep Radio Free Mormon broadcasting behind enemy lines. To make a donation, all you have to do is go to RadioFreeMormon.org Click on the donate button and let the spirit guide you from there. And now in the immortal words of Bill Reel, on to what you've been waiting to hear. All right. Welcome to today's episode of Talk on Things and Stuff. I've got a dog in my face who demands to be cuddled. Yugi cuddles are going to be, a, um, uh, for good or bad, probably a prominent part of today's session because he has insisted that today is a day of cuddles. But today we are going to finish out our series on General Conference where we are joined by none other than Radio Free Mormon. RFM, how are you doing today? Good morning, Jonathan Streeter. Good morning, Yu-Gi-Oh! When you're talking about Yu-Gi-Oh. having the dog when you're talking about having a dog in your face for the whole episode, I thought you were talking about me. <laughs> no, he's much cuter than you. Although he, I don't know, you know, he is also a glutton for attention, and he wants to be the center of every discussion that he's in. So maybe he is a little bit like you, RFM. I'm you know, the great thing about in. dogs, great thing about dogs <laughs> is you can tell them whatever you want, no matter how stupid it is. They're going to look at you like you're the smartest person in the world. That's why I keep Yu-Gi-Oh around, actually. So. <laughs> Anyway, so today, you know, last time we were like, hey, we're going to get through the last session, but we got this one talk to go through, and we ended up spending the entire couple of hours on that talk. Um, So today we're going to try to finish it out. Now, before we start, is there any follow-up or anything of note that has happened since then that you want to discuss real quick? Well, yeah, I have to give an apology now publicly, because when I'm wrong, I apologize. Um... I made a couple of comments about Sherry Dew and her appearance in the last episode. And that really was not (sighs) right of me. My mother would not have been proud of me in those moments. And I want to apologize for that. You remember this. This is when I said that Sherry Dew is starting to look like. Don't repeat them. If you repeat. (laughs) No, I want to apologize. 
I want to give a complete apology, a serious apology. So I do apologize for saying that Sherry Dew is starting to look like Kim Hunter from Planet of the Apes. All right. You're, that was sure not that, that was not right of me. Okay. Now I'm sure there's a lot of people out there that have seen this movie and know who you're talking about, and that made a great deal of uh, humor response to. But I've only seen the modern Planet of the Apes, so I, I don't have any context for that. Get your hands off me, you dirty, filthy ape! I thought it was damn dirty ape. It might be this. This is the PG yeah. version. This is a family no, show. That's true. That's true. All right. Well, I am sure that your apology is heartfelt, authentic, and will be accepted in the spirit in which it is offered. And with that out of the way, anything else before we... No, that was the main thing I wanted to talk about today. Everything else will just be gravy. All right. So we get to talk about Dallin Oaks. We are going to get through this. Uh, I have sworn it. So Dallin Oaks starts. This is the Sunday afternoon session. We've been through all the other sessions. And Dallin Oaks is going to start. And I think this is really, really interesting and perhaps a little bit um, off key in the sense that we just spent Sunday morning where all these different members of the church from all different inhabited continents. Remember, that was the point of it. uh, Got up to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ at the behest of President Nelson and whatever President Nelson wants, President Nelson gets. So he has all these different speakers in the Sunday morning session preaching about Jesus in order to emphasize the diversity and the worldwide nature, diversity of membership, worldwide nature of the church. And then we have a two-hour break, and the very next speaker to get up is Dallin Oaks, first speaker in Sunday afternoon. And what he talks about now, after having had this incredibly worldwide emphasis in just the session before, he's going to start off by talking about how wonderful and inspired the United States Constitution is. Now, I like the Constitution as much as the next guy. Okay. I think it's a great, I think it's a great document. I think it's wonderful. And I think it served this country well for um, maybe the first hundred years or so of its existence. No, seriously, though. Um, But it just seems very strange and atonal for uh, President Oaks to get up and give a very American centric talk like this right after the early morning session about diversity and the worldwide nature of the church. However, he's going to try and expand the importance of the Constitution by talking not just about the Constitution itself, but about the five principles of the Constitution, which he thinks have universal application. And the very first thing that he talks about, um, what is that look on your face, Jonathan? What do you... What's going well, on? I mean, the, the thing that catches my mind about all this is, yes, you're right about all this. But the other thing that this is a backdrop of is this is happening on Easter Sunday, which is arguably one of the most sacred days for anyone in the Christian world, where the focus really is on the message of Christ, the miracle of Christ, the re- resurrection, what that means for everybody. Like there's a very specific uh, spirit to Easter and then he gets up. He's like, I'd like to talk about the United States Constitution. And it just seems like you, know, you can talk about the Constitution anytime, any general conference. You could say, hey, let's hold a fireside for BYU's law school and talk about the co-. You could do that anywhere. And it's still the message would get out. You just say, OK, let's publish it in the ensign. It's published in the ensign. It's going to hit the whole world. It's going to be translated in a ton of languages. But here we are on Easter Sunday 
talking about the U.S. Constitution. That's fine. Anyway, I know. But that's, Easter that's morning. Amazing. This is this is in the afternoon. In the morning, Easter morning, we took care of all that Jesus stuff. Now we're going to get on oh, to okay, the important okay. stuff in the afternoon. We've had our <laughs> Easter celebration. So if you right. if you can you put up a picture of Elder Oaks? Yeah, let's let's see him. Because I don't want to be rude here or say anything offensive, but he's starting to look like Professor Bunsen Honeydew from the Muppets. You can always rest assured that RFM is going to say something rude and offensive by preceding it with, I don't want to say anything rude or offensive. I don't know. I think this is an improvement because in his middle age, he's, he kind of looked like um, Sam Eagle. Yeah. With the eyebrows. It sounds like him too. Yeah. Well, it's it's actually odd. There was a post made recently where they looked at a photograph of da uh, Dale Renland and uh, Soares, the apostles, and they compare the, what they looked like in their first talk as general authorities with what they look like now. And it's like they're growing thinner. They're just losing – I mean, their their face is more skeletal. And it's it, – you know, as a physician, when you're – when you're dealing with patients that are getting older, there's this thing called cachexia that sometimes pops in where people start to lose the normal body healthy uh, fat in their interstitial tissues and they start looking skeletal and everything. And it it's just, it's odd to see that happening for people where it seems to be happening more rapidly, but um, it hasn't hit Dallin quite yet, but there is this changing appearance. I think since the general authorities are all very, very elderly, we're, they get front and center and we get to see some of the effects of aging in real time anyway. Yeah, it's called advanced old age. Yeah, yeah. Usually spent with family and grandchildren, but in this case, uh, you know, they commit themselves to the church for their old age time. They're like walking pictures of Dorian Gray. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we got to get to the, the picture. Talk. Not not Dorian Gray himself, but the pictures. Where all right. the sins and the evil become... All right, very good. Okay, so that's our Oscar Wilde quote for the day. Thank you for and putting let's a fine get to the point top. on it there, Jonathan. I appreciate that. <laughs> um, so let's go to timestamp 00.54 in his talk. We've got a paragraph here. We're not. This is, I think, the only clip we're going to play from the talk. Everything else I'll just comment on really quickly to get through this because I have no idea why he's talking about the Constitution on Easter. But here's .54 in the talk. Do you have that, Jonathan? I do. Let's take a look. In these remarks, I do not speak for any political party or other group. I speak for the United States Constitution, which I've studied for more than 60 years. I speak from my experience as a law clerk to the Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court. I speak from my 15 years as a professor of law and my three and a half years as a justice on the Utah Supreme Court. Most importantly, I speak from 37 years as an apostle of Jesus Christ, responsible to study the meaning of the divinely inspired United States Constitution to the work of his restored church. Yeah, there you go. With all those qualifications, he starts this with, I'm not sure if he's giving a talk or if he's applying for a job, but he's like, I am the Lorax. I speak for the trees. I am Elder Oaks. I speak for the Constitution. And I think that the really interesting thing here, this is actually a nugget that I gleaned from this, where he made a revealing statement 
about himself. Now, I understand his being involved in the Constitution when he's a law clerk for a chief justice of the Supreme Court. Uh, 15 years as a professor of law, that makes sense to you be involved in the Constitution. Three and a half years as a justice on the Utah Supreme Court. I get it. But here's the interesting thing at the end, because you would think that an apostle of Jesus Christ might be focused on the ministry of Jesus Christ. And I'm sure he is to whatever extent he is. But what he says here is most important. I speak from 37 years as an apostle of Jesus Christ responsible to study the meaning of the divinely inspired United States Constitution to the work of his restored church. So if you take 37 years from 2021 when this is given, I think if you do the math, you go back to 1984 when he was called as an apostle. And it's very interesting to me that here he comes out and says that even as an apostle of Jesus Christ during the 37 years, he has been responsible We've all we've all thought this for a long time, but now he's saying it. He's responsible to study the meaning of the Constitution to the work of his restored church. And what I can't help but remember is that it was in 1984. What was that? Oh, gee, 37 years ago when newly minted apostle Dallin H. Oaks ends up writing the memorandum for the church that was titled, quote, Principles to Govern Possible Public Statement on Legislation Affecting Rights of Homosexuals. That was the name of the paper. I know you've heard of that memo. Probably everybody in the audience has heard of that memo. And he is advising the church, as I think he has been doing for 37 years, on the constitutional implications and what they can do in order to hopefully discriminate as much as they possibly can against homosexuals without violating the Constitution. This is the uh, freedom of religion that he has promoted on a number of occasions. Your thoughts, Jonathan? Well, I think the order that he gives his credentials in this thing and then the focus, as you point out, on the most important of all of those credentials is his status as an apostle speaks to, I think, what some of the anxiety that... uh, America as a young fledgling nation had where it is coming out and it's specifically setting itself up as a nation who is free from a state-sanctioned religion or any religious authority holding political sway over the government itself because there's this theme of religions claiming that God's law is higher than man's law. And so any religious faction can override and supersede the secular law because of some claim to a higher divine law. And that's something that um, the discussion in the early nation was kind of making sure that there were lines drawn so that that could not be the place. But the, And then the, anytime any religious faction becomes dominant, there's always this uh, suspicion that that is going on. And certainly that was part of the um, early church history. And the fact that he places his credentials as an apostle as higher than any of those other things hints a little bit that the church leaders have this notion that God's law is or should supersede the nation's laws. And the more you pay attention, the more you see this kind of start to 
be an an undercurrent or a theme in it. If you watch the uh, the originally Mormon leaks disclosed videos of the closed door session of then former Senator uh, Gordon Smith, I think. I think he's uh, still former theme, senator. Oh yeah, okay. Um, and that theme is like saturated in that discussion, um, where even something like uh, confidential or top secret. Uh, information he discloses freely in terms of the nuclear capabilities of Iran and everything. So that that's something that I think we would be suspicious if there was any other non-Mormon, as Mormons, we'd be suspicious that there was a non-Mormon faction that had this secret notion that their laws and their priorities were higher than the nation's laws and that they were encouraging their members to get into positions of government so that they could secretly uh, forward their own priorities using the mechanisms of the state. And that this just... That, that's the thing that comes to me. There's other things in this talk that um, I think are contradictory because he starts talking about how God's, the, the divinely inspired way of government is that the powers derive from the people. And, and, and so you have to say, well, if that's true, then the church should really embrace and center the notion of, um, what, what's it called? Common consent. Common consent. Or, yeah, because that is the religious expression of authority deriving from the people. And then you can even say God has a way of operating in that way because his effect upon the people guides what those decisions are. But the church does not do that in any way. So he's trying to have it both ways in that regard. Um, there has been this rumor for a while that he's he's got this special position among the apostles because of his history, because of these credentials, where anytime there's a legal question, he's the apostle that speaks on it, and he's the one that informs the other apostles and the prophets about the nuances of law and what the church should do in that regard. And there's a project that I have on my back burner because he's given several talks specifically well, excuse me. addressing— Excuse me, did you say you have several projects on your back boner? Burner. Okay, I'm sorry. I didn't understand because it sounded when you replay this, you're gonna laugh because I okay, think you well, are Freudian. You misspoke. You're supposed to let those Freudian things go. Anyway, I'm done with my rant. Just about just the thing is, he's got several talks talking about the tension between religious liberty and rights and constitutional government. And we've just seen the United States Supreme Court come out with a ruling in the last 24 hours, I believe, that further affirms. Um, his perspective, which is that um, non-governmental institutions should have the right to discriminate according to their own principles, um, and that that is an expression of freedom of speech. So this is an ongoing debate that um, he is the talking head on that for the church. So I think his focus on this concept in this talk is specifically to push back against people who say the church should not have any say in political uh, affairs. He's saying, no, 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 no churches and their membership do have a right to engage in that debate in the public discourse. And this is why we have freedom of speech in a pluralistic society. And so there's elements of this that I can really agree with, but it's a good debate to have. Yes, I agree with you. And, you know, I think we've probably said enough about this, except to remark that he's sort of like uh, Robert Duvall in The Godfather. He is the consigliere. Mm -hmm. So anyway, anyway, um, and I thought it was also very interesting. He gives five principles from the Constitution. I'm probably going to let the audience go through this on their own. One of them was about the government deriving their power from the people. And the interesting dichotomy, maybe I'll just touch on them real quick here, is that if you look at these five principles from the Constitution, which he himself announces 
is divinely inspired. Okay, so if we've got a divinely inspired document for how to run a government, one wonders why it is that the church, which is also divinely inspired, has a completely different setup for its operations. Um, obviously, a an argument can be, can be made, well, that's for a government for all these different people, and this is a church just for members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And I think there's probably some merit to that argument, but it is interesting. The five principles, when you compare them with the way the church operates, first is, this is from his talk, first is the principle that the source of government power is the people. Well, of course, that's not the way it is in the LDS church. This is once again given in a conference, which I think was the third one in a row, where they asked for a sustaining vote from an audience that they could not see. And they had no way of knowing whether they voted because they don't care how the members of the church vote. They're going to go on and do what it is that they plan on doing anyway. In fact, a lot of their decisions they've made and done before they present it to the body of the church for the sustaining vote. So that's the first thing. Second one, he says, a second inspired principle is the division of delegated power between the nation and its subsidiary states. So there's talking about federalism, right? You've got the federal government and you've got local state governments. And you could look at the church and say, well, they've got general authorities, right? There's the general government. And then you've got your local authorities, which would be like the state governments. But there is no division of delegated power between the um, general authorities and the local authorities, right? There's no delegated power that these guys have as local authorities that they can exercise independent of general authorities. That just doesn't happen in the LDS church. His third one is um, the separation of powers. And I did that two-part podcast, a Radio Free Mormon, years ago now called Apostolic Coup d'Etat, which shows how actually the church that Joseph Smith set up was in some ways uh according to the revelations in the Doctrine and Covenants, attempting to create a system that did have a separation of powers that operated independently from each other, whether it was the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles versus the High Council versus the First Presidency versus the Quorum of the Seventy, which were all uh, designated as being independent and equal in authority to each other. So I'm not going to go over all of that again, but uh, the separation of powers was originally at least in embryo in the LDS church, but it was rapidly taken over by Brigham Young after the death of Joseph Smith and all the power in those different entities were subsumed by the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. And then finally, when they got rid of the patriarch, oh, the patriarch was another one, the church patriarch who was independent, yeah. equal to the prophet, possibly even higher than the prophet, but at a minimum equal to the prophet, well, that became problematic after a period of time. So they just sort of got rid of the, the church patriarch. In other words, you have to be as old as I am. Or let me put it another way. You have to have been a member of the church as long as I have, 43 years now, to actually remember being in conference and sustaining the patriarch of the church as a prophet, seer, and revelator. So there's the third one. A fourth inspired principle is in the cluster <laughs> Sorry, it just strikes me as funny that he's talking about a cluster in his talk. A fourth inspired principle is in the cluster of vital guarantees of individual rights and specific limits on government authority in the Bill of Rights. 
Well, we as members of the church have no individual rights from the general authorities in the LDS church, or if we do, I have yet to find them. And there are no specific limits on the governing authority of the general authorities in the LDS church, unless it's that they can't actually go out and, uh, I don't know, burn people at the stake anymore. Not that they ever did. I'm sorry. I'm not trying to give that impression. But they they do have some limits on their rights. But the limits on their rights are basically the limits that are put on them by the government anyway. Um, he also says, without a Bill of Rights, America could not have served as the host nation for the restoration of the gospel, which began just three decades later. And once again, this brings to mind the fact that even in the United States, with the United States Constitution and the Bill of Rights and the guarantees of freedom of religion, yet the LDS Church or the Mormons had to actually flee the United States in order to survive. When they left the United States and went to a territory of Mexico out in the Great Salt Lake Basin in 1847. Um, Fifth and finally... I'm monologuing here. Just throw in any time you want, Jonathan. Fifth no, and finally. I think you should get through this. I'll have some things to say, but I want you to get through these five points. Okay, thank you. Fifth and finally, I see divine inf- inspiration in the vital purpose of the entire Constitution. We are to be governed by law and not by individuals. And our loyalty is to the Constitution and its principles and processes, not to any office holder. That's an interesting statement when you compare it with the LDS church, that our loyalty is not to any office holder, but to the Constitution and its principles. And I think that I see, by and large, the reverse of that in the LDS church, where loyalty is supposed to be to the office holders and specifically to and especially for the president of the church. This is a multi-layered talk because at at one level he is there he's laying out what he says is a divine system of government. These are principles that God has infused into this doctrine, this document, the Constitution, which you and I know the church has in the past talked about the Constitution as a form of scripture because it has divine guidance in its pages. And so for him to spend time focusing on this as a divine document is no surprise to someone who's grown up as Mormonism because God's hand is in that document. And so it is a form of scripture. And so we've got this layer of his talk that's talking about that, but particularly at that last thing where he says, not to any office holder. I really feel like that is a pushback against some of these fundamentalist type uh, prepper type people that placed so much stock in the figure of Trump in the past election cycle because he became the standard bearer against the forces of, you know, what Mormons would see as the progressive evils of the world. And the the, the church kind of wants to make sure that it doesn't become so polarized to one party or the other that people start seeing that there's no separation in it. The church needs to make sure that it is seen as a nonpartisan entity that people can hold either political persuasion and be a membership of. And this is kind of pushing back on that and making sure that that's um, part of the, the dialogue and thinking about how the church's position relative to politics. Does that make sense? Yes, absolutely. Are you done with this talk? No. Okay. So <laughs> a couple things. He does this thing, the historical revisionism, and he talks about how, you know, 
The, the church is, you know, the, the church was persecuted early on because it didn't believe in slavery. And so it's now saying that the church itself was against slavery from the beginning. That's historical revisionism there, you know, early in Joseph Smith's career, when abolitionists came and talked in the community of the church, advocating for the idea that it is immoral and unjust for a human being to hold license to another human being's life in the form of slavery. Their position was we must abolish this system outright and just nullify the idea that one person could hold the title to another. That was the abolitionist stance. And the church, there's a famous letter, I think it's uh, 1834, 1836, something like that. Joseph Smith wrote to Oliver Cowdery about this and basically refuted the abolitionist argument and then went to biblical interpretation to uphold the idea that slavery has been endorsed by God and can be seen as a divine principle. Even though it's uncomfortable and unpleasant, it does have a place in society. This was later repeated and instituted when the Mormons had a chance to form their own government in that famous 1852 speech by Brigham Young in front of the state or the territorial legislature in Utah that instituted the priesthood ban. Um, So the church early on had some mixed signals because the mixed signals comes from We heard recently that Joseph Smith, when he ran for president, part of his platform was the abolition of slavery. Now, when you want to get technical, his platform was not the abolition of slavery. Abolition means you nullify the idea that one man can hold a title to another. His solution was, we'll sell some government lands, take the proceeds of that money, and purchase slaves from slave owners. So when you're purchasing one human from another, you're endorsing the idea that a human can own the title to another person. But that was just a compromise, a way to do away with this. And it was politically expedient because... Any politician knows that if you hold the right position on a controversial topic, you can capture a number of people. Just look at Mitt Romney's position on abortion. When he's running for an office in a place where they like it, he's for abortion. When he's running for office in a place where they don't, then he's against abortion. It's just, it's politically expedient in some instances. So that's kind of where the politics gets into this. Um, Let's see. I think the last thing I want to say on this is... Here we have an apostle saying this is a pattern for divine government. Well, we have another leader that established a pattern for divine government, and that was Joseph Smith and the Council of 50. And he made the case, now that we have those records, that this was a pattern of divinely led bodies of authority. And you can look in the in in how our parliamentary procedure works in the United States legislature and they have a rules it's not Robert's rules of order it's a system of parliamentary procedure that was originally started by Thomas Jefferson and has been updated and amended and that's how they adjudicate um, decisions and um, hold their processes well in the Um, Council of 50, they established their own parliamentary procedures. This is the nuts and bolts of how power is processed and executed. And there's an article on the Thoughts on Things and Stuff website called The Rules of the King, The Rules of the Kingdom, The Council of 50, and The Anatomy of Theodemocracy, because that was the system that Joseph Smith proposed. Theodemocracy, a fusion of political and religious authority, which is really just theocracy, but it has the veneer of democracy because when you hold undue influence over your entire body of people, you can have the uh, facade of democracy, even though it's theocracy. But when you look at those rules and how they would actually work in practice, it's essentially one man at the center being able to dictate the entire conversation and the entire vote. And it specifically says that when the president of the of the body 
makes a decision, everybody below him starts to vote. And if they would vote against the decision of the person, they have to make their case. If they're not persuaded to the position of the president, then they have to remove themselves from the body and get replaced with a yes man who will agree. So how can you say something is actually democratic when you have to remove yourself if you disagree with the president? But that is the facade of democracy that, you know, you have this idea that you can take an authoritarian system and just plaster the word democracy over it and it'll make it all better. This is why you have all of these communist totalitarian regimes adding People's Republic or Democratic Republic onto their names. If you just look at the Republic of Korea or whatever, you just you put a facade of something you know is noble and good over the thing that is really ter- you know tyrannical and it makes it all better. And, and that's what is part of the early church history on this notion of how the intersection of religious authority and political authority works. So that's my diatribe on that. Check out that article. I put a link in the comment if you want to read it. Uh, It was originally written before the Council of 50 letters were disclosed or the journals. And now that the Council of 50 journal has been published, it's validated. Everything that's in there was actually in there. Um, So it's a really fascinating document to look at. So let's go to the next talk unless you want to uh, comment on that. No way, baby. We got to move. All we right. got to move. I appreciate your points. Excellent ideas and research. Now we get to Elder Ronald A. Rasband. His talk, Behold, I am a God of Miracles, is the title. And so he's going to talk about how great miracles are, as if that needs to be pointed out, but how there are miracles in the church today. Because the way the church is set up that um, since its inception is that miracles are a part of the church because that's part of the restoration. This is why this is the original Christianity from 2000 years ago restored. It has miracles in it today. And he is going to tell us about this incredible miracle, Jonathan, of which he was a personal witness. And he starts here on timestamp 3.26. This is part of his introduction. Do you have that? I do. Let's play it. Many of you have witnessed miracles, more than you realize. They may seem small in comparison to Jesus raising the dead, but the magnitude does not distinguish a miracle, only that it came from God. Some suggest miracles are simply coincidences or sheer luck, but the prophet Nephi condemned those who would put down the power and miracles of God and preach up unto themselves their own wisdom and their own learning that they may get gain. Can you stop there for a second, Jonathan? Yeah, Yeah, so this is very interesting to me because this is his introduction to his big miracle story. And already he's starting to sound kind of defensive here. He's starting to sound like, uh, you know, you've witnessed miracles. And then he says more than you realize. Well, that's an interesting thing to say. I mean, maybe it's true, but I'd like to think if a miracle happened, and I witnessed it, I would realize it. I mean, a miracle is a pretty amazing thing, right? But then he starts to dumb it down. They may seem small in comparison to Jesus raising the dead. Well, yeah, they probably are going to be small compared to that, right? But the magnitude does not distinguish the miracle, only that it came from God. So no matter how small something is, no matter how much it may look like a coincidence, if it came from God, it's a miracle, right? So... Then he goes on and says, some suggest that miracles are simply coincidences or sheer luck. Well, a lot of them look like coincidences. But the thing is, he's doing kind of what the church essay does in the first vision 
essay, which is before they even get to the first vision, they have all these paragraphs about how it is uh, that the first vision can still be true, even though there are changes in the story, even though the, it wasn't written down immediately, even though it is, doesn't appear to have been communicated until maybe 1832, the first time it was written down, which would be 12 years after the fact. Yep. When you get to the point where you're making all your excuses up front before you get to your miracle, you know that there might be a problem with the story itself. Because what he's going to say is, this story I'm going to tell you might not look like that big a deal, but trust me, it is because it came from God. That's what makes it a miracle. Yeah, and not just trust me that it is, but it followed up with, if you don't, if you don't accept the idea that this is a miracle, then you're preaching unto yourself about your own wisdom and your own worthy, your own learning so that you can get gain. So anyone that doesn't see this as a miracle is basically somebody who's just trying to get followers for themselves, claiming that they are the prophets themselves. And I think we call that poisoning the water hole. Yes, poisoning. Like Woody from Toy Story says, somebody's poisoned the water hole. If you can go on, now he's going to talk about this miracle. By the way, if you don't recall this, this is what I call the miracle of the generator that worked. Can you play this? All right, let's go. Miracles are wrought by divine power, by he who is mighty to save. Miracles are extensions of God's eternal plan. Miracles are a lifeline from heaven to earth. So he's really building it up there. He's puffing it up there. We should really be amazed by the strength, power, and, and miraculousness of miracles. It's going to be awesome. Last fall, Mr. Rasband and I were on our way to Goshen, Utah, for a worldwide face-to-face, -face, an event being broadcast to over 600,000 people in 16 different languages. The program was to focus on the events of the restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ, with questions submitted by young adults from around the world. Sister Rasband and I had personally reviewed the questions. They gave us the opportunity to testify of Joseph Smith as a prophet of God, the power of revelation in our lives, ongoing restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and truths and commandments that we treasure. Many listening today were part of that miraculous event. And actually, I do have a comment here in the notes, Jonathan, but mm -hmm. it really relates to the next thing he's going to say here. By the way, I do want to say about Elder Rasband, I don't want to be too critical of him. He, among all the apostles, seems like a genuinely nice kind of guy. You know what I mean? He just sort of has that avuncular air about him. And I don't want to be rude, but he does remind me uh, somewhat of Curly from the Three Stooges. And everybody likes Curly the best. Yeah. I just see him as the, the cuddly, multi-millionaire uh, apostle who could very easily turn into an angry bulldog. But I don't Ooh. know if he does that. He just, he just, I don't know, his, it's his body habits are kind of like, if, if he gets mad, it's going to be pretty impressive. But he's Ooh. so jovial. I, I like him. Can okay, you play so, this next paragraph, and then I'll comment about what he does here? Okay, here we go. Initially, the broad, broadcast was to originate in the Sacred Grove in upstate New York, where Joseph Smith testified, I saw two personages whose brightness and glory defy all description standing above me in the air. 
One of them spake unto me, calling me, me by name, and said, pointing to the other, This is my beloved son. Hear him. That, brothers and sisters, was a miracle. The worldwide pandemic forced us to relocate the broadcast to Goshen, Utah, where the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints has recreated for filming a section of Old Jerusalem. Okay, right there. Sister Rasband and I were within. Okay, so here's the deal. He's going to get to his miracle of the generator that works here in a second. But the interesting thing is, is that even as he's telling the story, he's already engaging in an application of the Texas sharpshooter fallacy. Because what's going to happen is that this generator is going to save the broadcast in Goshen, Utah from uh, failure. Okay. And we'll get to those details. But notice at the beginning that originally this broadcast was supposed to take place from the Sacred Grove, but it had to be removed to Utah because of the worldwide pandemic. So there's no miracle to allow them to shoot it as originally planned in the sacred grove. So that doesn't happen, but you see, this doesn't even phase him. And in fact, most people probably wouldn't even notice this as he's going through the talk, people listening to it in conference. But mm -hmm. I noticed that there's a place here for a miracle, but the miracle doesn't come. So it has to be moved to Utah. And when something happens in Utah, now that is the miracle. We're gonna ignore the miracle that didn't happen at the beginning. And we're gonna focus on this miracle that happens in Goshen. Yeah. The land of Goshen. <laughs> All right. Should we continue? Please. All right. Sister Rasband and I were within a few miles of Goshen that Sunday evening when we saw thick smoke coming from the direction of our destination. Wildfires were blazing in the area, and we worried the broadcast might be at risk. Sure enough, at 20 minutes to 6, our broadcast time, the power in the entire complex went out. No power, no broadcast. There was one generator that some thought we might be able to power up, but there was no assurance it could sustain the sophisticated equipment at hand. Okay, right there. So they're in a studio. This is built by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints with $100 billion plus in the bank. You know it is a nice place. You know it's a sophisticated setup. And there's one generator there. Well, as a general rule, Jonathan, what is a generator supposed to do? It's provide backup. Yes, if power goes out, you've got a generator there that is supposed to provide backup. And it is supposed to be big enough and powerful enough to provide energy to all of the equipment that you would need to use if the power went out, right? Yep. So he tries to dumb this down because, okay, spoiler alert, this generator is going to work. Okay, that's what's going to happen. This is his miracle. That sounds like this chance. That sounds like chance. That and, and the whole not thing even is chance. That just sounds like intended consequence. Exactly. It's not even a coincidence. I mean, the church has lowered the bar to miracles to simple coincidences now. This is even below that because this is mm. a generator doing what a generator is supposed to do. It's not a coincidence, but he tries to dumb it down a little bit here in this last line that you just played where he said, there was one generator that some thought 
we might be able to power up. Well, what I mean, is it like dilapidated? It's sort of like this old uh, busted up generator in the back that's maybe especially, partially hooked up. Especially for a movie studio they just built for some project. Yes, so exactly. <laughs> there was one generator that some thought we might be able to power up. Well, duh, you hit the button, right? So, yeah. but there was no assurance, he says, but there was no assurance it could sustain the sophisticated equipment at hand. Well, I got news for you, okay? If the generator that is provided there and built there was not sufficient to sustain the equipment at hand, then somebody needs to get fired because that's the whole point of having the generator. Good point. Thank you. Now he goes on, and with a spoiler alert well in mind, he continues. All of us on the program, including narrators, musicians, and technicians, even 20 young adults from our own extended family, were fully invested in what was to take place. I stepped away from their tears and confusion and pleaded with the Lord for a miracle. Heavenly Father, I prayed, I have rarely asked for a miracle, but I am asking for one now. This meeting must happen for all our young adults around the world. We need the power to go on if it be thy will. Drum roll, please. Seven minutes after six, as quickly as the power had gone out, it came back on. Everything started working from the music and microphones to the videos and all the transmission equipment. We were off and running. We had experienced a miracle. Can you stop there? As okay, so we had experienced a miracle. And you know it's a miracle because he kind of went all Elder Iring on us there when he started crying there. Did you notice that? I did. He is really selling it for all it's worth that this generator does what a generator is supposed to do. And in fact, by the way, it didn't even get him started on time. It was still seven minutes late starting. But trust me, this is a miracle. They were off and running. Everything was working. Everything was powered by the generator the way it was supposed to be. And this is the miracle. Now, I've also got to add this. This is general conference. This is the best he has. He's giving a talk about miracles. This is the best miracle that he has to share with the audience. Presumably, I'm guessing if he had something better, he'd be sharing that. But no, this is his miracle. So the generator that worked. And now here's how he really cements the fact it was a miracle with a phone conversation with President and Sister Nelson right after the show. Sister Rasband and I were in the car returning home later that evening. President and Sister Nelson texted us with this message. Ron, we want you to know that as soon as we heard the power was out, we prayed for a miracle. There you go. You see, if you got President Nelson praying for a miracle and Sister Nelson praying for a miracle, then it's a miracle because that's what made it happen was the prayers. When it comes to getting generators to work like generators are supposed to work, President Nelson's prayers work. When it comes to turning back the tide of COVID, President Nelson's prayers don't work. In fact, the prayers of the entire church and even the world don't work, accompanied with their fasting on two occasions. 
But no, when it comes to a generator working, it's going to work. By the way, if this was uh, like one of those uh, Mormon rumors, right? Those uh, faith promoting rumors that you hear sometimes, the punchline would be, and I think if Elder Rasband had called me, I would have told him about this. The punchline should be that after the show was over, they went to the generator and they found out that it wasn't hooked up. That, that would, would be, really be a miracle. Did you get chills right then? I got chills. <laughs> it wasn't hooked into the power supply. They started it, but it wasn't hooked up and all the lights came on. That's the story you want to be telling. That's the one that's going to get the oohs and the ahs from the audience. So he's got the um, the message from President Nelson. They prayed and we had a miracle. Could you just play this last part? Because now he's really going to put it uh, in the starkest terms that this miracle happened, not because the generator did what a generator is supposed to do, but because the Lord put forth his hand and laid it upon the generator and blessed it to work. In Latter-day Scripture, it is written, For I, the Lord, have put forth my hand to exert the powers of heaven. Ye cannot see it now, yet a little while, and ye shall see it, and know that I am, and I will come and reign with my people. That is exactly what happened. The Lord had put forth his hand, and the power came on. Boom. Way to sell that story, Elder Rasband. I'm done with this story and with this yeah. talk. Do you have anything you want to add before we go on? There's a utility in diminishing the definition of miracle, and that is that miracles can be seen as a proof of the legitimacy of one's belief, of one's faith. And if you confine miracles to things that have no explanation, that are supernatural, well, then those things are going to be very, very rare. And they're not going to actually be available to act upon the mind of somebody to bind them to the belief of the faith. But the more that you dilute miracles, the more that you redefined coincidence or even expected outcomes as miracles then the more that you are teaching the people in your group to find the hand of God in everyday occurrences, and that hand of God is contextualized as proof of the legitimacy of the church. And so by doing this, he's actually empowering and enabling members of the church to see miracles more in their day-to-day -day life, which many people of religious persuasion would say, that's good. You want to see God's hand in your day-to-day -day life because that turns your mind to the mindset and frame of gratitude. And that gratitude perspective not only defines your relationship with God, but it then infuses into your relationship with other people. So there's a healthy element to a gratitude perspective. But what this is actually doing is it's binding people to belief in the church and the authorities of the church so that it may give you the benefit of a gratitude perspective, but it also places you clearly under the thumb of the authority of the leaders of the church. And that's where this mode is, because miracles are only defined in so much as they support the intentions and purposes of the church. So what I, that's kind of my take on that. There is a talk, because this is something called mystical manipulation, where you take coincidences or natural occurrences and you attribute divine power for the purposes of the people trying to manipulate you. This, you see this in all kinds of different scenarios, uh, specifically religious. And um, I'll put a link to, it's a 35-minute uh, video where we look at examples that are very similar to this one, but done in the frame of Jehovah's Witnesses and how they see 
coincidences as proof of their legitimacy and some other examples that just show you how widespread this is and how it um, gets played out in different religious contexts. And you can look in the comments for that um, link. Great, great. You know, I'm going to go out on a limb here and I'm going to suggest that even if Elder Rasband had not prayed for the power to come on, and even if President Nelson and his wife Wendy had not prayed for the power to come on, that um, the power probably would have come on. I, I'll take that bet. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> There's no way to prove it. Okay, oh. so like, light cleaveth unto light by Timothy Dykes. Yeah, Timothy J. Dykes. There's a huge backstory to this, which I'll share on another occasion, probably on Mormonism Live at some point. But we've got to get through this. And I just want to get to his story because he's got another miracle. He has another miracle story. By the way, Timothy J. Dykes is a name with which I'm familiar because I've talked to this gentleman on the phone. He is the head of the Strengthening Church Members Committee. Now, I can't speak for the fact he's the head. I guess technically President Nelson is the head because he's the head of every committee, right? But within the committee, I believe that Timothy J. Dykes is the head. And I know that he monitors me. So he'll probably listen to me talking about the talk that he gave in general conference, which is kind of fun if you think about it. Anyway, his talk contains a story about his granddad and this wonderful miracle that occurred with his granddad. And this miracle, you remember the first miracle with Elder Rasband was the generator that acted like a generator? Well, Elder Dykes is going to tell us a story about a horse that acted like a horse. Do you have this here? Let me see here. It is it's way down there. Timestamp 752. That's the one. All right. I got it. Now up. Pay, pay close attention. We're just going to play this story and then we're going to go back. Jesus Christ. I come from goodly parents and from faithful ancestors who responded to the light of Jesus Christ and his gospel and have blessed their lives and the generations that have followed with spiritual resilience. My dad often talked about his father, Milo T. Dykes, and shared how his faith in God was a light to him day and night. Grandpa was a forest ranger and often rode alone in the mountains, entrusting his life without question to God's direction and care. Late one fall, Grandpa was alone in the high mountains. Winter had already shown its face when he saddled one of his favorite horses, Old Prince, and rode to a sawmill to scale and measure logs before they could be sawn into lumber. At dusk, he finished his work and climbed back into the saddle. By then, the temperature had plummeted and a fierce winter snowstorm was engulfing the mountain. With neither light nor path to guide him, he turned Prince in a direction he thought would lead them back to the ranger station. After traveling miles in the dark, Prince slowed, then stopped. Grandpa repeatedly urged Prince forward, but the horse refused. With blinding snow swirling around them, Grandpa realized he needed God's help. As he had done throughout his life, he humbly asked in faith, nothing wavering. A still small voice answered, Milo, give Prince his head. Grandpa obeyed, and as he lightened his hold on the reins, Prince swung around and plodded off in a different direction. Hours later, Prince again halted and lowered his head. Through the driving snow, Grandpa saw that they had safely arrived at the gate of the ranger station. With the morning sun, Grandpa retraced the faint tracks of Prince in the snow. He drew a deep breath when he found where he had given Prince his head. It was the very brink of a lofty mountain cliff where a single step forward would have plunged both horse and rider to their deaths in the rugged rocks below. 
There you go. There's the story. So this is a wonderful story, isn't it? This was a near catastrophe, which was averted by the prayer of Milo and uh, God giving him direction to give Prince, the horse, old Prince, his head. And then old Prince miraculously led him home through hours of driving snow and getting back to the ranger station. Now, when I listened to this the first time, first off, I've got to tell you something. I grew up in the 60s as a kid in Texas, and I had a pony. Sorry, it's just another reason to hate me. I had a pony when I was a kid. Oh, my gosh. And, you know, my dad had a quarter horse, Palomino, and my oldest brother had another uh, Palomino quarter horse. Those horses were brothers. I've got the pony. They got the big horses, right? So uh, doing some stuff with horses as a kid, I mean, I wasn't by any means an expert horseman. But the reason that this struck me as funny is that one of the basic things that you learn with horses as a cowboy, right, is that horses have an innate ability to find their way home. This is something that horses are famous for. And I thought they were famous for it, but I, I called up a number of people about this talk afterward. And I talked to, I think it was John DeLynn. I think you were another one, Jonathan, and um, Bill Real. And I told them all about this. And they had no idea uh, that horses are famous for being able to find their way home. They like have an inbuilt GPS system. And it is so famous that I thought, is this just something I heard as a kid and it's not true, <laughs> you know? But I, I Googled it. All I Googled was... Uh, why is it horses can always find their way home? And there's all these articles about it. And in fact, it's such a, a famous and recognized phenomenon. I mean, it's not even a question that they can do this. The scientists have actually studied how it is that horses are able to always find their way home in a storm, in the dark, under all sorts of circumstances where human beings might not have the same luck. And one of the things they did was an experiment because a hypothesis, which appears to have some support, is that one of the ways that horses do this is they have, uh, they're able to navigate by magnetic fields in the earth. Strange as that sounds. I mean, they're not bats doing sonar and they have a good eye for landmarks and the lay of the land and knowing where it is that home is, right? It's where home is that they can always find. Uh, but they tied some magnets around some horses and other horses. They didn't tie magnets around their neck. Right. And they found that apparently the magnets around the necks of the horses interfered to some extent with the magnetic fields such that they had difficulty finding their way home that the horses without the magnets did not find. So that was the first thing that I, I thought about this. And I thought, you know, if your grandpa, Milo T. Dykes, has had any experience with horses, if he's not a tenderfoot, he's got to know this, too, that if you get lost, you just give the horse his head and he will take you home. Giving a horse his head when you're lost is the equivalent of stopping at a 7-Eleven to ask for directions. That was my punchline. Did you have anything you wanted to say about that? One of my pleasures is missing your punchlines and not realizing when you're 
blessed sense of humor happens. I just want to- Oh, Aragorn! My favorite, my favorite example of this from the Lord of the Rings where they used the same principle. They understood that a horse has this innate ability to navigate home. And, you know, Aragorn was chased off the cliff in the movie. I don't think it's in the book by a It is not. I was very disappointed by this scene. Yeah, and his um, horse Brego, um, which I think he got from the Rohirrim, I, I don't remember exactly, got him and then he's like, he can't do anything, but the horse finds him safely to Helm's Deep where he can break the heart of Eowyn. Uh, and we'll just fast forward it to that. Look at that, he got him there. The luckiest, and the most reckless man I ever knew. Yeah, <laughs> it's a and miracle! My, <laughs> and, and my horse is pretty cool, too. Thanks, Gimli. Yes. Exactly. Anyway, yeah, that's, exactly. that's my only comment there. That was a wonderful surprise. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, absolutely. Horses can do this. They do it all the freaking time. And the amazing thing is that this is, it's like God has to tell him to do this when he should have known that maybe it was like a reminder that came to him. Hey, dumbass, you need to give the horse his lead so he can take you home. You're in a blizzard. And for some reason, the horse is not going any further. Now we find out later, right? That that's because he's on the precipice of a cliff and he's trying to urge and spur and goad his horse over the edge of a cliff, which his horse can see completely well in spite of the snow because horses have these big old eyes on either side of their head. They can take in so much more light than you or I can, which gives them the ability to see a lot more things in the dark, even in the snow. And that's why the horse is not going forward. And he could have kicked that horse all day. And I don't think the horse is going to budge a step forward. So finally, he gives him his lead. He takes him home in a very unmiraculous kind of miracle. Now, here's the other thing that happens is that within the story, the rider does not know that he stopped on the edge of a cliff. We need a punchline for the story. And that is his realization that he was stopped on the edge of a cliff that he couldn't see at the time. So he has to come back at a later time to find out it was on the edge of a cliff. That is necessary to the story for the punchline of the miracle. And in order to get there, the story has the rider Milo riding the horse for hours through the driving snow he looks up again there at the ranger station. And what we find out from the story is that the very next morning when the sun comes up, this uh, Milo, he's, he's got to know, where did this horse stop? Why did he stop? This is just driving him nuts. So he's not just staying home, you know, thanking God that they got through a, a blizzard and that he's alive to tell the tale because he came perilously close to losing it out in the snow. No, first thing he wants to do is saddle up the horse and retrace those steps for hours back through the snow to the point where the horse had stopped. And that's where he sees, oh my God, it was on the edge of a cliff. Good horse, you get some extra oats today. My problem with this is twofold. First off, he wouldn't do that. And the second is he couldn't do that. The first wooden part is you're not going to go back there and find the place the horse stopped because who the heck cares at this point 
except for the fact that he has to find out it was the edge of a cliff for the miracle story. So you actually got two stories that are going on here. One is the purported story of what happened. And then you've got this overlaying story, which is how it has to happen in order for a miracle to happen. In other words, the working of the story is determining how the story is told, even though it defies reason and it defies logic. So nobody is going to be taking their horse back out after it's been trudging through the snow for hours and saving his life the night before. You don't do that, okay? You wouldn't do that as a ranger, as a cowboy, as a human being. You wouldn't do that because there's no reason to. And even if there were a reason, you wouldn't do it. Okay. The second thing are is- Are the footprints- Go ahead. Maybe no, go ahead. Into that. Go ahead. Are the footprints even going to still be visible? Like, no. Maybe the snow is so driving that he can't no. see anything. They're not going to be there. And that's the problem with the story, because on one level, it has to be taken from this cliff where he stops, right? Mm -hmm. For hours is the story. Through the driving snow is the story. And then all the way back to the ranger station, which is a matter of miles. I don't know how long. But, but the morning comes, the shadows flee, low Zion standard is unfolded. But... You can't find the tracks. Now, I expect that right outside the station, when the horse is coming in, you can probably see some tracks there, which are not completely filled in. But the further you get away from the ranger station, the less and less you're going to be able to see the tracks until they're completely filled in and blown over by snow and you can't follow them anymore. I think that this is demonstrably something that could not have happened in the manner in which it is related your thoughts well there's the one confounding thing and that is that you know we've all heard of this the story of the fish that got away mm. and you know it's the classic story your grandpa your dad tells you as you're you're a young bright-eyed kid and he's telling oh i got this fish you know and i struggled with it for three hours and it was this big and it just keeps getting bigger and more miraculous and everything but that becomes part of your family story it's like you know dad dad got this he was like a barracuda and it just like becomes of the mythology of your family and all of our families have these mythologies like my in my family one of the mythologies on my mom's side she's born in mexico she has brothers that used to swim across the border they were wetbacks that's how they called it but you know like one time he went into a cave and he met with the devil and so now there's this like fear with the devil and it's like it's just part of the mythology of your family, but this, he's giving us a mythology story from his family. And it doesn't have to be factual. It doesn't have to be rooted in reality. It's, it's a story meant to amaze people, amaze children. It gets passed down and it has all these elements, but now we're taking this private personal story. That's it's never been vetted or whatever, but we're now going to broadcast it and use it as proof of, of the church itself. And you and Bill Rill have done a good job of taking all of these different stories, whether it's, you know, the missionary whose long lost brother, you know, he was able to meet him because the dog stood down while he was on a random missionary. And, you know, all these different miraculous stories, when you dig into them, you realize they're not really miraculous stories. In some cases, they're complete fabrications or just, you know, complete misrepresentations of what actually happened. And they end up having to pull back on it. And it's just another example of that. You know, you can see the purpose that it serves in inspiring people with a seeming miracle. And again, back to that idea that miracles prove the validity of your belief in this institution of the church. And so it's serving that function in this general conference 
But if it's not real, as I think you've made a very good case that these things, uh, you know, their departure from reality is not proof of a miracle. It's not like, oh, it's a supernatural thing. It's that it's inconsistent and contradictory with what we understand reality represents. And so it's a fiction. It's an inspiring fiction if you're in that mode of belief, but that is what it is. So I think you made a good job of laying that out with all the different points on it. Thank you. More and more, a lot of these miracle stories in general conference, I'm finding to be like um, Encyclopedia Brown Mysteries. Did you ever read those when you were a kid, the little short stories? And there's something in them that's wrong and you're supposed to find out what it is because Encyclopedia Brown, he says, no, I know that you are lying. And that's just, how did Encyclopedia Brown know that he was lying? Go to the end of the book. A true hot dog aficionado would put the mustard over or under the sauerkraut. That was like my favorite one. <laughs> was that Where one he of has them? Like a foil, yes, he has like a foil Busby or something like that. And like, yes. you know, it was a ring that he had stolen. And he knew that Busby was lying because if you really like hot dogs, you put the mustard under the sauerkraut, not over the sauerkraut. And that was like the thing that proved that he was lying. That one seems a bit extreme. I like the one about, I mean, that's, uh, it's Encyclopedia Brown that taught me that squirrels climb down trees face first. Because, uh, yeah, because Busby's telling the story and as an incidental uh, uh, detail, there's a squirrel up in the tree and I guess he's in the tree house and he says, it's the squirrel back down away from me. Mm. And Encyclopedia Brown says, liar. (laughs) Turn to the back to find out why. Well, because squirrels never back down trees. They go head first. Encyclopedia Brown, the inspiration for RFM's career as an attorney. <laughs> okay, are we ready for this next thing? What is yeah, it now? Let's do it. Um, oh, we got to hurry. Uh, let's see. Why the covenant path? You know, we really don't have time for this. And this is a uniquely boring talk. Did I actually say that? In general conference, well, to call something uniquely boring is high praise indeed. But it's uh, by it, D. Todd, Elder D. Todd. Christofferson. And his talk is why the covenant path. So, you know, immediately, oh my, a whole talk about the covenant path. We just don't have to hear it sprinkled throughout another talk. It's a whole talk. Yeah, it's going to be boring. You you wanted to say something. Well, I just D. Todd Christofferson, bless his soul. Not the most charismatic guy. Mm, no. Um, but he, no. he does give you just a, a peaceful sense that, you know, when he speaks, you feel like you can trust him. You know, plain, he does have that calming demeanor. Plain yogurt has more personality than D. Todd Christofferson, I'm afraid. So I will tell you that the only thing that's of interest in this talk, and I'll let you go back and listen to it if you want. Let's not even play the, the audio clip on this. But um, he's going to talk about why the covenant path is so great. But actually, well... Okay, let's just play that. Let's play play this timestamp. 3.36, because he's going to ask a really, really good question, but he's going to spend the rest of his talk not answering it. Yeah, but I think it's important to discuss this question. Let's play it. Hold on. Good choices with or without bad. Some might say, I can make good choices with or without baptism. I don't need covenants to be an honorable and successful person. Indeed, there are many who, while not on the covenant path themselves, act in a way that mirrors the choices and contributions of those who are on the path. You might say they reap the blessings of walking a covenant consistent path. What then is the difference of the covenant path? Good question. question. 
Good question. And it's one that's come up before. I mean, in my personal life and lots of people have asked this question. Well, if keeping the commandments is what it is that brings us the blessings and ultimately gets us to the celestial kingdom, what happens to a person who's outside the church? And we know they exist. We've seen them. We've seen them in the wild. So we know they exist. What happens to a person who's outside the church and lives a Mormon life? But they're not Mormon. They follow the commandments. They're good to their neighbors. They may not even smoke or drink coffee or, you know, alcohol, whatever. Right. So basically, they're dry Mormons. So why is it that these two people who are in all other respects acting the same? Why do they receive different rewards in heaven simply because one of those groups, the Mormon group, receives covenants and the other one doesn't? Your thoughts about that question? No, I think it's one of the things that probably a lot of us confronted on our way out of the church is dealing with, well, what do we do about the people who seem to be really good outside of the church? I think our innate tendency to want to have empathy for them and compassion for them is like, they shouldn't burn in hell or receive some lesser degree of glory just because they didn't, you know, accept the claims of the church. You know, we know there's controversial stuff in the church's history, so it's not surprising that good people would not accept it. But why is that held against them? And yeah, what is it? Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was no, just saying, I, and what I, is I, it? What is this magic? What is this magic in the covenant? Yeah. You know, what is it that's so special about them when it's just a formal ritualized taking upon ourselves obligations from God, right? To follow yeah. these covenants. Why is that so important? So it's a good question. And I'm impressed that he actually asks it in general conference. And my only wish is that he would have done a better job of answering it because actually he never answers that question, at least not in my mind. What he goes, he gives five different another five. This is sort of like Elder Oaks talk about the five principles, but he's going to give five things that he believes make it different. And if you play the, just this next part, he'll list them and we're not going to go through each of them. He'll then go through each of them in his talk, but we're just going to mention them because what he really does is he just says the covenant path is different and it's better, but he never actually says why it is that it's necessary. Okay. The difference is uniquely and eternally significant. It includes the nature of our obedience, the character of God's commitment to us, the divine help we receive, the blessings tied to gathering as a covenant people, and most importantly, our eternal inheritance. There you go. First so if you go really quickly through those, it includes number one, and the numbers are in the, the transcript of the talk in the enzyme. It includes one, the nature of our obedience. Well, wait a second. Now, we've already established the fact that the obedience itself is the same. That's the whole point of having this question and the point of answering this question, right? But he's going to mm -hmm. say, number one, the nature of our obedience, okay, that's already a given that it's the same. So I don't know why you're talking about that. Number two, the character of God's commitment to us, which is really not something that we're interested in. We're not talking about his commitment to us. We're talking about whether two people following the commandments should receive the same reward if one takes the covenants and one does not. Number three, the divine help we receive. Okay, that's his third uh, distinction. But the divine help has nothing to do with it either because 
apparently the people who didn't take the covenants but are still leaving a covenant consistent life, apparently they're not receiving any divine help and they're doing just fine. Number four, the blessings tied to gathering as a covenant people. Well, he's really stretching to pad his list at this point, isn't he? What does that have to do with anything? The blessings uh, tied to gathering as a covenant people to answer his question. And most importantly, number five, our eternal inheritance. Well, the internal inheritance is the whole thing that makes this question of interest. Because the eternal inheritance of those who take the covenants, make the covenants, follow them, is celestial. And those who follow the covenants but don't take them is terrestrial. Okay. So he asks a good question. And once again, I want to give him credit for that, but then he spends the rest of his talk, not addressing the question he has raised your thoughts. I think that this question has been in the minds of religious people for ever in and inside and outside of Mormonism. And when he asked this question, it immediately brought to mind, for me, other people that have posed this, specifically C.S. Lewis in the Chronicles of Narnia. And if you've read the Chronicles of Narnia, it's kind of an allegory of a, um, a fall and a redemption and a Christ figure. And in, in the world of Narnia, Aslan the lion represents Christ. And it, uh, it comes to a head at an apocalyptic type, uh, revelation type scenario at the end. And so the last book um, is called The Final Battle. And in The Final Battle, you have the forces of Aslan and the forces of Tosh. Who It's kind of like a stand-in for sort of uh, Islam or some other religion that is, you know, seen as existential, um, existentially at odds with Aslan the lion and his followers. It's the Christ figure and his followers. And in the final moments of that book, there's a door and the followers of Tosh and the followers of Aslan come together and, and the ones that were good and righteous go through and they join Aslan. And there's a particular character whose name is Emeth. And if you just, I'll put the link in there, but if you Google um, Emeth, E-M-E-T-H, and just read about his story, the thing that is unique about him is that he was raised as a follower of Tosh, the evil demon god. And he is surprised to find that he is called forth and joins Aslan with the good people. And he's like, how did I end up here? I lived my entire life devoted to Tosh. I cursed your name like you were seen as, you know, the, the bad person from my perspective. Why am I with you? And C.S. Lewis is trying to communicate through this story the idea that if you are compassionate and loving to your fellow being, that those acts, regardless of whose name you're doing them in, those acts in and of themselves are a witness or a testimony of the love within you that they contextualize as coming from Christ and God, regardless of what name that you do it in. And this is just a different way of teaching the principle that Christians find in one of the parables taught by Christ. And I know you've mentioned this before, and you you laid it out so well. Do you, do you remember what that part of our conversation about the two sons or something like that? Oh, right. One of the parables is a brief parable that Jesus gives. You almost never hear about it, where he talks about uh, a man had two sons and he told them both to go work in the field for the day. And one of them said, I will. And he didn't go. And the other one said, I won't go. But he did. Which mm -hmm. of the two sons is acceptable to his father? Right. Or, and it's no, which, of, which of his two sons did what his father wanted, did right. what the father wanted him to do? That was it. Right. And so it's it's a good question, because if you're living in a legalistic 
hierarchy-driven religious framework that's all performance-based in terms of what you appear as. And then you, you, you use lip service to do and say, to say all the things that you're supposed to say, but then you don't actually do them. And this is like, you may say that you love other people, that you're compassionate, that you're sharing, that you will treat other people kindly when eyes are on you. But then when eyes aren't on you, you act in a very selfish or mean, aggressive or abusive way. Or you may find someone that does not make it a point to give vocalization to his commitment to these ideas, doesn't say that he's going to covenant or do any of these things. And yet they still treat people in a way that is consistent with uh, a Christ-like love. And so that's kind of another reformulation of the question here. Only what Christofferson is doing is he's saying, no, 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 no. The covenants are actually important. You giving this vocal performance, entering into these covenants, that's what's going to make the difference. That's what God actually wants you to do is the covenants and the the acting. Whereas this different religious paradigm that you'll find that a lot of the wider Christian world will accept is is that the conversion that happens within your soul, within your heart, the, the proof of that conversion isn't anything that you say or you profess. The proof of that conversion is how you actually find it acting out in your life. And it's not that the good, that the acts justify you. It's just that the acts are an expression of that conversion. Right. And go, that, that's just the, the thing that it just draws, again, the contrast between two religious paradigms which may give lip service to things that we're supposed to do or that how we're supposed to act and treat other people. But what at the end of the day, what that actually means for your life and for your relationship with God is very different. Right. And I think that if he had added a number six to his list of reasons, number six really is the real reason that the covenants are essential. And the reason why is because if the covenants administered by the LDS church are not essential to going to the highest heaven, then the LDS church no longer has any claim upon you. Yes. Yeah. And, and that's the thing is you have people saying, wait a second, I can be a good person. I don't have to go and go through some weird ritual in some gaudy, ornate building. I can just be a good person. And if God... You know, that should be enough of an offering to God for me to receive his blessings. And that's liberating because it allows you then not to have to have all of the, um, you know, the demands upon your life that the church imposes on people. And it frees you to walk a spiritual path defined by your own relationship with the divine and not by defined by the edicts of this religious entity that, you know, sits in its multi-million dollar buildings and proclaims how the world should be. Yes, and whether intentional or not, effectively positions themselves as intermediaries between the member mm -hmm. and God. Yeah. So yeah. I mean, you, there's those chapters in Matthew that uh, have Christ ridiculing the Pharisees for doing just that, for acting as gateways, for sitting in Moses' seat and um, basically putting themselves between individuals and God and um we just find the church fulfilling that role again and again and again. It's just yeah. not Moses' seat. It's the red velvet seats. I think that's Matthew 23, if I'm not mistaken. That sounds right. Oh, I think 23 you. and 24. Uh, well, okay. We won't, we won't get there. <laughs> 24 is actually the part about the last days, right? Oh, okay. Where, you well, know, you're, I, you're probably right. You, you, you and 25 segues into the parable of the sheep and the goats. But we don't have to go there, okay. Okay. Um, we do need to go to the next talk. 
which is right. given by a lower light, Elder Alan R. Walker of the 70th, titled The Gospel Light of Truth and Love. I have subtitled this uh, probably the biggest gaslighting talk of the entire general conference. Because believe it or not, it's April, it's 2021, the church is having so much trouble with membership, with retaining membership, with gaining new membership. They are leaving in droves and the church growth has stalled and may even be going backward if we actually knew the facts. We've talked about that in other episodes. Mm. But yeah. here, what Elder Walker is going to do is he is going to tell the entire church that the uh, the members of the church that everything is not only good, it's great. And the church is con- continuing to grow at rapid at a rapid pace. And we are gaining members like hell isn't having any. So here's where he goes into it. I know this seems remarkable, doesn't it? That we're having a talk like this when the truth of the matter is widely available on the internet, but maybe that's why they refer people only to faithful sources. Timestamp 2.20. Listen to what it is he has to say. He's going to do a This is what they do. They do a historical overview of the growth of the church in the past, which was remarkable, and then try and pretend like it's continuing today. All right. Here we go. Latter-day Saints was formally organized in a small log cabin in upstate New York in 1830. It took 117 years until 1947 for the church to grow from the initial six members to one million. Missionaries were a feature of the church from its earliest days, fanning out to Native American lands, to Canada, and in 1837, beyond the North American continent, to England. Not long after, missionaries were working on the European continent, and as far away as India and the Pacific Islands. The two million member mark was reached just 16 years later, in 1963, and the three million mark in eight years more. Highlighting the rapid growth of the church, President Russell M. Nelson recently said, quote, Today, the Lord's work in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is moving forward at an accelerated pace. The church will have an unprecedented, unparalleled future. Okay, can, you stop, can you stop there for a second? The re- we're going to play this last paragraph here in a second, but you can see what's going on here is that he's talking about the incredible growth of the church. It was slow at first, starting with six members, took a long time to get to the first million. But then, you know, in 63, three million mark in eight years more and so on. But it's not just a history lesson with the obvious implication that the same thing's going on today. No, he puts the dot on that eye and he says, Highlighting the rapid growth of the church, President Russell and Nelson recently said, today, the Lord's work in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is moving forward at an accelerated pace. The only thing that I can see accelerating is the amount of gaslighting that is going on about the growth of the church through its membership. They're not talking in vague terms. Oh, well, maybe they're talking about money in the bank account, or maybe they're talking about some other metric of growth. No. He is talking specifically about the growth in the membership of the church in the past that is still continuing to rapidly accelerate today. All the while, by the way, Jonathan, all the while that this speaker knows perfectly well that what he is saying is not true. Your thoughts? 
Well, is that true though? Does I mean maybe he's under the delusion that the church is growing and he's just trying to give air to that. I, I don't I think mean, he could be that ignorant as a seventy in the LDS Church. Okay, well, um, you know, I stand all amazed at his hairline. Like I feel like my forehead. I stand all amazed older. at any hairline. <laughs> I'm sorry. But, go ahead. Um, <laughs> I, there, there is the, you know, you've talked before about word games that the church plays and, you know, using one concept and then in the middle of the sentence, switching how that word is used. You use that on the uh, the concept of faith and faithfulness. Um, and, and here, you know, he does he is talking about members, but then it shifts subtly to the work. When when President Nelson, when he's alluding to President Nelson, he's saying the Lord's work is growing. And so that shift at the very end there allows, makes people think that they're still talking about members, but it also allows them to claim that they didn't lie because they were talking about the work. They weren't talking about membership because the Lord can do more with fewer people and it's even more of a miracle. And that's, you know, so I think we've seen that the church has a pattern where when they can show objective increase in numbers, they're going to toot their horn about that all day. But when that is no longer possible because of declining membership, declining growth, then they're just going to be silent about the membership numbers and they're going to talk about other things. They're going to talk about the increase of the faithfulness, the increase in the work, things that are vague and less hard to pin down. You can't give statistics about the work, you know. And then as long as you do have that growing bank account, you can always say, well, if God blesses those who are his chosen people, the, the fact that we have more money in our bank account than any other religion is proof of God's divine favor. You know, it, it's a tangible thing. And um, it's kind of like when you cast lots and whoever gets the, the, the longest straw, well, that's proof that God has selected you. It's just you take these things that you can say prove God has chosen you and that becomes the the thing that you rely upon. It's just harder to do, do with money. It gets worse, Jonathan. Well, let's keep going. Let's keep going. because no, It gets worse. No, don't play this next part, okay? Because he's just going to repeat okay. the same thing. But what I wanted to point out is that when he's talking about these stats, he's these are not his words. He's actually quoting something. And what he's quoting is another article. And the article that he's quoting is on the church website. It is under the newsroom for the church. And if you look there, actually, the easiest way to find it is to go to his talk on the LDS okay. Church website. You'll find there's a footnote at the end of that quote. It's footnote eight. If you click on that, like I did, you'll find that it goes to this article that he's quoting from about how rapid the growth of the church was. This is on the church website. This is continuing to be promoted by the LDS Church in an official capacity. And here's what it says here, okay? Because there's additional stuff here in this article, which I just want to mention really quickly, okay? It goes on to say growth consists both of convert baptism uh, and natural growth through the birth of children. Church membership today is over 16 million, okay? He didn't get to that part. But then it goes on. Now listen to this. See how your argument prevails against this, Jonathan. Okay. The consequences of this rapid and sustained growth are seen in many places in the world where the church operates. Congregations that are grouped into geographical areas known as wards are periodically divided as they become too large to administer or to worship in a chapel or meeting house all at once. New buildings. Are you listening, Jonathan? New buildings are being completed virtually every day of the year in order to house growing membership. 
according to the National Council of Churches, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is the second fastest growing church in the United States. However, despite its increasing numbers, the church cautions against overemphasis on growth statistics. Are you still going to plead ignorance on that one? No, the next (laughs) sentence, the church makes no statistical comparisons with other churches. In the very next sentence from where they made a statistical comparison. (laughs) No, yeah, but that was according to the National Council of Churches. They're the ones who made that comparison. They're just repeating it here. (laughs) Good point. So on the church website and in general conference, they are continuing to push the myth the gaslighted myth that the church continues to grow at this accelerated pace in membership, okay? And they're being specific. It is the membership numbers that continues to grow. That's why I give this talk the Gaslighting Award for the 2021 April General Conference. New buildings are being completed virtually every day of the year in order to house growing membership. New high-rise apartment complex buildings are being... (laughs) Built every day of the year in order to house growing membership of the Apartment Complex Association. New hotels in Hawaii are being yeah. bought for $100 million by the LDS Church every day of the year. No, I don't know that that's every day of the year. I doubt that it's every every other day, maybe. No. Are you ready to go to Elder Bednar? Let's do it. We got half an hour. This is really a terrible talk. And with Elder Bednar, that's saying something. He doesn't start it out with any juicy kind of, you know, uh, metaphors of pickles or other shrubbery. Instead, he calls it the principles of my gospel, and he's going to talk about the principles. But he's not going to talk about a specific principle. I mean, he will as an illustration, but he wants to talk just about principles in general, the concept of principles. And I'm just going, oh, my gosh, what made you think that this would be interesting to anybody? So he goes on, and um, actually, there is one thing there at the beginning that I have, which we're not going to talk about, okay? Um, Okay. I guess we could, but we're not going to, because I think this is a very, very boring talk. I did some additional research. We're not going to have time for that, I think, but let me just scroll down through this. You know, he does go on and on, doesn't he? Oh, my gosh. Well, actually, the last thing is uh, President Nelson's concluding remarks, so I think we can. Can we just start at the very beginning and go ahead and play Elder Bednar? We really should miss an opportunity to see Terminator Jr. in action. Do you have that first? Okay. Here we go. The first two paragraphs. In the General Conference of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, in October 1849, Elder John Taylor of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles was called to open the nation of France for the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. His service included the editing of the first official church periodical in that country. Elder Taylor prepared and published an article in 1851 in response to frequent questions he had been asked about the church. And near the end of that essay, Elder Taylor recalled the following episode, quote, Some years ago in Nauvoo, a gentleman in my hearing, a member of the legislature, asked Joseph Smith how it was that he was enabled to govern so many people and to preserve such perfect order, remarking at the same time that it was impossible for them to do it anywhere else. 
Mr. Smith remarked that it was very easy to do that. How, responded the gentleman, to us it is very difficult. Mr. Smith replied, I teach them correct principles and they govern themselves. Close quote. Is that the end of it? I hope that's the end of it. Yeah. <laughs> Boy, what a long story to get to this very famous quote from Joseph Smith. Uh, but I guess that was the exciting part. We're going to tell a story about John Taylor and how it was that, that uh, he was called France and all this stuff. But yeah, I mean, how much you've heard that everybody's heard this. And I suppose if I stop yeah. and I think about it for a second, I have to ask how accurately does that describe the LDS church, at least today, that all they do is teach us correct principles and then they let us govern ourselves. Uh it's more like all we do is we teach them that if they vary from what we tell them to do, that they are bad people and that they should, uh, you know, correct themselves and that their family should ostracize them until they get back in line. You know, it's just it's when you go back and look at how it actually operated, it wasn't simply teaching them correct principles and letting them govern themselves. There's all these other psychological manipulations that are involved in it. And you can just look at any other you know, utopian society under a charismatic leader, and it's the same thing. Yeah, so here's Elder Bednar putting himself in this position of teaching correct principles and letting us govern ourselves. Is he really abdicating his duties, his responsibilities, his powers as a part of the government of the church? I'm having, a tro I'm having trouble believing that that's what he's doing. Yeah. But maybe we should take him up on it. So anyway, I thought I thought it was interesting. I'm sorry, you, you had something? No, I want to see where you're going with this because it's something that I love. If it's where I think you're going with it, oh, absolutely. Because when you talk, when you mention John Taylor and France in the mm -hmm. same sentence, you are leading to trouble. Yep. And this is one of the things I don't know why they do it. I don't know if they're aware of it. But just bringing up this idea, oh my gosh, John Taylor was called to France to open up the the mission field there. Well. He may have written this article, but he did a lot of things when he was in France, as you might imagine. It's John Taylor. Mm -hmm. He was there for a number of years. And there was a um, an occasion in 1850 when he was in, uh, is it 1850? I hadn't looked at my notes recently enough. I'm sorry. But uh, at any rate, there was a public discussion in which John Taylor was involved with other uh, ministers in other faiths. It actually went for three nights. It's a three nights public discussion between the reverends Cleve, Robertson, Carter, and Elder John Taylor, right? Of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints at Boulogne-sur-Mer, France. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly. But according to D. Michael Quinn, this is very, very interesting because the subject of polygamy comes up. And one of the ministers accuses the Mormons and accuses John Taylor of the fact the Mormons practice polygamy and what the heck is up with that. So this is 1850 when this is happening, by the way, as background by this date in 1850, according to D Michael Quinn, rest his soul, John Taylor had married 12 polygamous wives who had already borne him eight children. So I believe that means he's got 13 wives. If 12 of them are polygamous, it's either a dozen or a baker's dozen, depending on how you calculate it. He's got eight children already. And in this context and with this background, the minister named Robertson says this. Okay, this is a pamphlet, right, that was written about it. It says, he and his friends 
had quoted against the testimony of General Bennett and Professor Caswell and of works published in America in 1848. Okay, these works had testified that Joseph Smith kept up a seraglio of Sisters of the White Veil and Sisters of the Green Veil. And that Sidney Rigdon, who had at one time been almost as great a man among the Mormonites as Joe Smith, had quarreled with Joe for the latter's attempt to introduce his, Rigdon's daughter, into the sisterhood. So what's happening is that John Taylor's over there. He's having a public discussion over three nights with other ministers. These ministers have read books that were written by people who had left Mormonism about the the polygamy going on, the Sisters of the Green Veil, the Sisters of the White Veil, Mm -hmm. even up to and including this account with Sidney Rigdon and his daughter, Nancy, right? And you've gone over that prior to this. episodes on the happiness letter, exactly. Google happiness letter and Sidney Rigdon. Right, where Joseph Smith proposes his daughter and she rejects him. And then there's this whole fuss that happens because she gets kind of loud about it. And he goes and and he uh, Joseph Smith apparently gives a different account of it. And then she comes into the room and says, no, you know perfectly well that you propositioned me and I'm not going to have anything to do with you. Right. So this is being brought up to John Taylor, public discussion and in France, in France, where they're all apparently uh, speaking English. And. So now at this point, at this point, uh, now Mr. Robertson demanded distinctly of Mr. Taylor what was the nature of the sisterhood of the white and green veil? Hmm, Elder Taylor? Mm-hmm. What was the nature of the dispute between Sidney Rigdon and Joseph Smith? And if you go down there, what you find is that John Taylor, who knows perfectly well that the Mormons are practicing polygamy on account of he's got 12 wives himself and eight kids, right? Um, he knows perfectly well that they're practicing polygamy, but it's a secret. And therefore, he avoids the issue by appearing to deny it, but not really denying it because, you know, that would be wrong to lie. Right. So. To, to, to nail this down, you can find this pamphlet published in BYU's uh, website. And if you go to the page where this discussion is happening, here you have the response of an apostle of God in Europe who's been directly asked, is there anything like polygamy going on? And you can read his words that he then published himself. He's like, I want this to go out because this is how they're getting converts by deceiving people about the reality of polygamy so that they join, go all the way over across the world and then they're trapped and whoops, polygamy. And so he's got, as you mentioned, 12 wives at home, multiple children by these wives. And then you've got, we are accused here of polygamy and actions most indelicate, obscene and disgusting, such that none but a corrupt and depraved heart could have contrived. These things are too outrageous to admit of belief. Therefore, leaving the sisters of the white veil and the black veil and all other veils with those gentlemen to dispose of together with their authors as they think best, I shall content myself by reading our views of chastity and marriage from a work published by us containing some of the articles of our faith, the Doctrine and Covenants, page 330. Before we get to that, before we get to that, can I I just uh, remark on how wonderfully he has appeared to deny something which he never actually denies right he just oh, we're going to dispense with it we're accused <laughs> of polygamy and actions that are horrible so much so that it have to be a depraved heart to contrive it that's an interesting admission on his part at the same time he's doing yeah. the non-denial denial these yes, things exactly. are too outrageous to admit of belief well that's not actually a denial 
<laughs> well, to, be fair, to be fair, though, he explained why he wasn't going to admit of their belief. It's too outrageous. <laughs> it's too outrageous to admit of this belief. And therefore, I'll leave that to you. And I will just quote the church's official position on the subject, Doctrine and Covenants. He says, page 330, it's uh, better known as 101 verse 5, yes. right? Right. In the 1835 and that's what you can edition. Do. Mm-hmm. You can go to the Do- Joseph Smith Papers Project. They've digitized all the old versions of the scriptures. You can find this version that was active at the time and read like whenever anyone, this isn't just John Taylor. He's just following the pattern of Joseph Smith. Because whenever Joseph Smith was confronted with this question, he said, people are accusing us of this all the time. I am just going to point you to the Doctrine and Covenants section 101. And there it lays out the case that marriage is only one man and one woman unless one dies and then the man's free to marry again. Any marriage has to be publicly disclosed and recorded in the records. And there's nothing secret, nothing hush-hush about it. It's just like any other marriage thing. And so when you listen to uh, Brian Hales and other people, they'll say, well, you know, they denied very specifically what it was or anything like that but it was still it's okay they didn't lie they just used carefully worded denials and they didn't they they specifically said we're not doing anything other than the norm and that's a very blanket statement Uh, it's a complete misrepresentation of what they were secretly doing right and um, i was wrong it's not verse five it's verse four but the the relevant language from verse one elder taylor quotes verses one through four in their entirety we won't do all of that But it says, we believe that all marriages in this church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints should be solemnized in a public meeting. So they're not secret, like you said, Jonathan, Mm -hmm. or feast, a public meeting or a public feast prepared for that purpose. And then you go down to verse four, inasmuch as this church of Jesus Christ has been reproached with the crime of fornication and polygamy, we declare that we believe that one man should have one wife and one woman, but one husband, except in case of death, when either is at liberty to marry again. So there it is set forward very, very clearly. This is not a non-denial denial. This is a denial denial. Yeah. Okay. And to me, this example, this instance is the most tangible, irrefutable example of the question of, did the early apostles lie to potential converts and to members about their secret practices unambiguously absolutely yes this is an apostle john taylor lying to people who are challenging him on this while he secretly already has plural wives who that is completely contradicting what he's using as this argument but he had a lovely tenor voice <laughs> this is true <laughs> and probably, so probably had baby blue eyes too mm, blink, blink, blink. but Here's the deal, uh, and I'm not going to go into this. We've got 15 minutes left, okay? But it's long struck me as very interesting that the first edition of the Doctrine and Covenants in which this section 101 is found was published in 1835. And what this tells us is that as early as 1835, the church had already been accused of committing the crimes of fornication and polygamy, so much so that it was felt necessary to issue a public denial of it. So mm-hmm. stuff was going on. You know, we we know a lot about the 1840s in Nauvoo. We know a little bit about uh, Kirtland and um, Fanny Alger, who was 1836, actually, right? Mm-hmm. Correct. I believe so. Yeah. Or she 1835 or so. Anyway, um, 
I can't remember exactly, but uh, apparently there had been enough stuff leaking out to where the public was starting to say those Mormons, they're practicing fornication and polygamy such that they had to publish this. They felt they needed to publish this lie in their official book of scripture, the doctrine and covenants. Yes, that early on. So that's what I'm trying to say. And what was going on there? Because it gets really hazy the earlier you get in church history about this polygamy. Well, we know for a fact that it was going on this early. And by the way, if this was something where the, let's say the church had never practiced polygamy in its entire history, then yeah, you can understand, oh, well, people are just making the stuff up because they don't like the Mormons yep. or they're confused or there are rumors going around and there was no basis to it. But when you have a church that in the 1830s, the second half of the 1830s and into the 1840s in Nauvoo is rife with polygamy, then these allegations being made before 1835 seem like they're probably more than likely based in fact. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, you have Grant Palmer released a document that followed early accusations of Joseph Smith's sexual impropriety preceding this. And he was making the case that like, this is just a symptom. This is the smoke that says that there's fire. Now, at that moment in time, if you take a snapshot, people say, we're just getting accusations. We're not doing any of this. If you say that where there's smoke, there's fire, we'll say, no, people make up lies and they're, they're lying. And then John Taylor's like, the people are lying. And then they keep saying that. They're lying. They're lying. And if anyone brings it up, she's a liar. She's a whore. You know, all these things. Until 1850, 1852, or I think that's the year where it the is. church said, okay, all right, yes, we've been doing this. It's true. Uh, but God commanded it. And, and and so now we've got to, you know, it's God's law now. And it's just like that degree of deception this early in the church, you have to ask yourself, if they're willing to lie not only to the outside world, but to the membership, because the wider membership of the church, it was just a small, closed group of people who were elevated in power and authority, who were doing this and lying to the general membership about it. If they're willing to lie about that and disparage people who are telling the truth, why are you trusting them for anything else? That's a good point. I don't have a good answer for you on that one. Yeah, no. My only answer is to go to the last talk, which is actually just the closing comments of President Nelson. I think that President Nelson uh, speaks more in general conference than any past president that I can remember, or at least more frequently. He obviously has a lot to say, and he's going to make an announcement of 20 new temples. Jonathan, 20. That's like we're growing 20 new temples. To show how fast we're growing and the fact that this rapid acceleration of the Lord's work is not just smoke and mirrors. It's actually real because we're building 20 new temples. Um, but the thing I found most interesting about this is how he talks about the inspiration and revelation they receive from God about closing the temples <laughs> due to the COVID. See, these were closed because of inspiration, not because of government mandate. And if you can play uh, just at the very beginning, oh, my gosh, the first thing he's going to do is going to say this absolutely required line, apparently, in the last comments in general conference about how we've been spiritually fed, remember, and how we've truly had a spiritual feast. Can you play that first line? I'm I'm sure that he improvised that. It it wasn't in the teleprompter. Let's keep (laughs) My beloved brothers and sisters, we have truly had a spiritual feast. Okay, stop. How grateful I am for... That just kills me. 
because for years and years, for decades in General Conference, I thought General Conference was boring as dirt from the very first one I watched in November of 1979, which is quite a letdown for me because I had been led to expect I'm going to be listening to prophets, seers, and revelators communicate what God has been telling them. And then to find out that it was boring as dirt was a letdown. But this whole spiritual feast thing, it's like uh, another listener had mentioned to me in a text the other day. Uh, the church tells you that they're they're leading you out through the desert into an, an oasis where there's this wonderful pool of water that you can drink from. Only, unfortunately, the oasis isn't there and the water is a mirage. Yep. And they keep uh, giving you water and telling you, you know, you're drinking this cool water. It's wonderful. It's refreshing. It's great. It's eternal life. And you're going, well, how come I'm still thirsty? How come I'm still parched? How is it you're telling me you're giving me all this water and I'm about ready to die from dehydration? So it's the same thing about the spiritual feast. For decades, I'd sit there and say, my gosh, I feel like a Big Mac after conference. I'm so hungry. I have not been fed spiritually or otherwise in general conference. I've generally been bored out of my mind in general conference. And so this is the obligatory line about we've had a spiritual feast. But if you can go on, he's going to talk about inspiration and COVID-19. Prayers, messages, and music of the entire conference. Thanks to each of you for joining with us wherever you are. Early last year, because of the COVID-19 pandemic and our desire to be good global citizens, we made the difficult decision to close all temples temporarily. During the ensuing months, we have felt inspired to reopen temples gradually through a very cautious approach. Okay, there, that's good enough. Now, notice this. This is really, really interesting to me. He says, uh, first off, because of the COVID-19 pandemic and our desire to be good global citizens, we made the difficult decision to close all temples temporarily. Okay, this has nothing to do with your desire to be a good global citizen. You were forced by the governments to close your temples. This isn't anything other than a government mandate. And in fact, according to Elder Bednar, when he gave his talk, I think it was at BYU about those miracles regarding that temple. When they were given the notification from the government that they had to close down, I think it was Friday, November 13th, 2020. At midnight, you remember that talk, right, Jonathan? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they, they get this word, like, yeah, they get this word five days in advance. So obviously, they need to close down in five days. You're getting a little bit of lead time from the government on this, but it's because of the COVID pandemic, and because they're good global citizens. What did they do? Did they say, okay, well, we won't wait till Friday. We'll shut it down now, and we'll try and uh, spare the possibility that our members coming to the temple are going to catch COVID. No, mm-hmm. what they do is they decide, no, we'll keep this open around the clock and we'll pack them in here as much as we can until the very second ticks on that clock of midnight on Friday, November 13th, and then we'll shut it down. So this is what they do to be good global citizens. No, they operate as much as they can within the mandates the government is setting. And notice he also says, inspiration, that's important. During the ensuing months, we have felt inspired to reopen temples gradually through a very cautious approach. And then he's going to lay out that approach and talk about the four phases for temple reopenings, which doesn't really concern us here. 
only that they have felt inspired is what he says. So is this something where the government has said you can reopen and they say, no, we're not going to reopen yet because we're waiting for the inspiration to come. Oh, now we'll reopen. Or are they just following exactly what it is the government allows them to do when the government allows them to do it? Well, the funny thing is, is that just a little bit later in his talk at timestamp 2.25, he's going to give away the farm and he's going to admit that we're opening when the government tells us we can open. Do you have that? And ever. Now, you may be wondering when you will be able to return to the temple. Answer, your temple will be open when local government regulations allow it. Boom. <laughs> Boom. It's less than two minutes. It's like two minutes. It's less than three minutes later, and he's given away the farm. He's claiming inspiration for the cautious reopening of the temples in the first place. And then less than three minutes later, he's saying, well, we're reopening them when the government tells us we can't. So apparently government comes not from the celestial kingdom anymore or Kolob. It comes from Washington, D.C. or Salt Lake City. Inspiration comes from those places now. Yes. It's funny because I seem to remember, I think there was like a... Uh, a video that Bednar did in the midst of all this where he's making the case, hey, uh, governments, you need to stop shutting down churches and by extension temple stuff because people, you know, you can't classify religious worship as non-essential and justify government intervention to shut it down. People need their houses of worship. They need their houses of faith. Those are an essential aspect of life. And it's wrong for the government to interpose like that. So they were there was a kicking and screaming element to this where they were making the arguments that it shouldn't be done. And, you know, that's a, I think that that's a healthy conversation to have. And I was glad to see some pushback on it. But then here claiming that, you know, that they were divinely inspired to it, you generally don't protest like that about things that you think are backed by divine inspiration. Oh, that's a good point, too. Very, very good cross messaging going on here. So that is the entirety of General Conference. Uh, he goes on to announce 20 new temples, and I don't know if we need to mock that any more than it's already been mocked. Mm -hmm. Obviously, we want to make little temples available in everybody's backyard so that everybody has access to the warmed over Masonic rituals that are given there. It's like somebody could be standing out front saying, get your warmed over Masonic rituals. Right here. And a program. And we've learned in the past that announcing a temple, we assume that that means that, wow, they've, they've investigated a site, they've gotten authorization from the government and from local regional authorities, and everything's in line so they can now announce it. But we learned with the announcement of a temple in China, I think it was in the past, or Taiwan or something, that... Mm -hmm. An announcement is simply that, an announcement. It doesn't mean that any any preparation could happen. And then there's a there's a brilliant graph that's out there somewhere about uh, temples announced and when they're actually built. And there's a significant gap in that. And, you know, it, it may be at some point in the future, a temple in China will be built. And then they'll be able to claim that they had this foresight of knowing that it will happen. But they can just announce any number of temples that they want to have get built. And it's proof of the growth of the church. Well, let me mention that in his talk, he does say that 41 temples are presently under construction or renovation. And he says, just last year, despite the pandemic, ground was broken for 21 new temples. But then he goes on to say, as I announce our plans to construct 20 more temples. And then he lists where they are. 
And um, you hear all the gasps in the audience. No, wait, you don't, because there is no audience there. Yeah. <laughs> it's like General Conference has become in its entirety the retaping of the elder uh, Pullman talk Pullman. from October 1984, yes. right? Where he has to go in to the tabernacle and give his talk, the corrected version of his talk, to an empty building. So that's what all of them are doing now. But 20 more temples. This is remarkable in a church whose growth is faltering. They're obviously not needed. They are more form than substance. They're more an advertising of how fast the church is growing to try and keep up appearances, right, with building materials and land that the church can control as opposed to non-members joining the church, which they cannot control, or members leaving the church, which they are continuing to find they're having a very difficult time controlling them as well. So we can't control the members leaving the church. We can't control the non-members joining the church, but we can control real estate and building materials. And by gum, that's exactly what we're going to do. The thing that I wonder is, I remember even before I transitioned out of the church, one of the problems that was happening was you would try to go to the temple and they'd be like, well, we don't have enough people that are showing up for that session, so we can't hold the session. And so it became hard to get sessions in the temple, not because they were booked and it's just like, oh, there's no room. You know, all the sessions are booked. It's that uh, we can't actually hold that session because there's not enough people to hold all the positions and do it. And I wonder if that problem is continuing. And, I, you know, if there's anybody in a position where they have access to statistics about how many sessions are actually run in any of the temples and whether you can look back retrospectively and see where the trends are, that type of data would be very interesting to see as to whether or not even this degree of growth of temples is justified. Because I get the feeling that not only the shift in membership, but also the shift in the type of religious practice that you want to engage in is different. Like, you know, I got into arguments and discussions with my brother about the church and temple all the time. And then at one point, he admitted to me that he went to the temple for his marriage, and he hasn't really been back since. And, you know, I had a family member I was related to by marriage, who was an older woman. And she said, you know, I went to the temple for my marriage, but it was I just felt really uncomfortable. And I feel uncomfortable in the temple. And so I just I've never been back except for the marriage of, you know, my children. And so it's just like these things are out there. And, and you know, that's the post-1990. <laughs> you know, there's no no longer any pantomimes of the pen- penalties, but they still are uncomfortable and people don't go. And and I, I get the feeling that sentiment will grow and the, the, you know, temple worship is going to be something different. I don't know. All I can say with any degree of secu- uh, surety, not having access to statistics, is this problem that you talked about in temples and having them staffed or full or the sessions, you know, uh, complete uh, every seat filled, whatever you want to call it. In other words, a temple being used to its utmost capacity. And like you said, even sometimes where they have to cancel things because they don't have enough people to run the session. To the extent that that has been a problem in the past, I feel secure in guaranteeing you that that problem has not gotten any better. If anything, it's gotten worse. And yet they're building more and more temples to not have full sessions and potentially not have enough people to to staff them. All with the idea in mind, apparently, to show that we're growing, show that we're growing. And maybe this other Henry D. Moyle idea that if we build them, they will come. Yeah. 
Well, it's 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 a form of theater, uh, no doubt. Kabuki. All right, RFM. Kabuki theater. You've, hey, we did it. We did it, Jonathan. Did it. I, I can't of believe all it. All different years that we've tried to actually make it through every talk. I don't think it's ever actually been done. You did it. Um, we did it. Baby. Thank you for reaching out to me to entertain the possibility that we could do this, and uh, hopefully that will um, you know people will respond favorably to it and give us some incentive to do it again in the future, where there will be fewer sessions, so it'll increase the chance that we can tackle it. That is such good news to me. I don't think anybody's yeah. happier about that than I am. <laughs> All right. Well, I got to go and wrap it up. So, uh, any final comments, RFM? No, but have a wonderful weekend uh, and. It was great seeing Yugi, Yu-Gi-Oh, here on the show. There's a message to in the air, come crazy horses riding everywhere. It's so morning, it's in every tongue, got to stop them crazy horses on the Come